0: 1 Samuel 17, verse 1, says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah and Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was 9 feet 6 inches tall. I'll just translate it for us. 9 feet 6 inches tall. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 25 pounds made of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul?' They were dismayed and greatly afraid. I plan on taking us through this whole chapter tonight, but I didn't want to read the whole chapter. I want us to to take a look at this, what I call a parenthetical. It's not the big story, but it's like a, a story within a story. It's a parenthetical story. What God is showing me in this passage of Scripture, what I hope to convey to you is what it means to recognize the winds of change when they begin to blow. Something was shifting in Israel. If you're new to the story of David, you may not know who he is, you may not know who Saul is, you may not know what's going on here. Let me give you a quick backdrop. Saul is a king who has lost his authority. He's lost his power with God. He's still got position, but he doesn't have power anymore. He still sits upon the throne, but the anointing is now on David, who is a teenager. David is the most unlikely hero in 1 Samuel 17, and when we see him here, he has already experienced some elevation from God. If you remember with me, David had been elevated to be the court musician to play for King Saul. David was not only a warrior, but he was a songwriter and a poet. He was every woman's dream. He's a tough hombre, but he's also a tender-hearted romantic. And so David was invited to come into the presence of King Saul and play his guitar and sing so that it would drive the evil spirit off of Saul because Saul, due to his disobedience, was now demonized. He was plagued with an occasional visit from demons, or at least a demon, that were driving him crazy. And so when that would happen, the servants would call for David, David would come up and play for a few hours, and the evil spirit would leave Saul. And then because Saul was so pleased with David's ministry as a musician, he made David one of his armor bearers. And so David was being elevated, and Saul had no clue that this musician and armor bearer that he had invited into the palace was anointed by God to be the future king of Israel to replace Saul. Now, that was going to come along down the road But here is the situation. A war was breaking out. The Philistines were constantly battling the uh, people of Israel. And now in this chapter, what we're seeing is a a switch between a battle scene and David's domestic scene. And so let's get into the word together and let's talk about what it means to recognize winds of change. Because Saul was on his way out and David was on his way up. God was the invisible Mover of the pieces on the chessboard. God was working something dramatic that was going to affect the entire history of Israel. And he was doing it behind the scenes, but when we're reading it, we can see the setup that was coming from God. It begins with this. In the first three ver- verses, we see days of war in Israel. These were days of warfare. And first of all, it reveals to us in verse 1, this persistent enemy was returning to fight against Israel. Who are these people? They're called the Philistines. It said they gathered together their armies to battle. Very quickly about the Philistines, here's what you need to know. The Philistines had been a problem for Israel ever since the people of Israel had entered into the Promised Land. They were prevalent during the times of Joshua and Joshua under his leadership the children of Israel failed to exterminate all the Philistines from the land. And then it moved into the time of the judges and all of those mighty judges that God raised up. The Philistines experienced regular defeat but they also never were exterminated. So they were a constant thorn in Israel's flesh. They were constantly provoking them. They would run into Israel's villages and they would raid the villages and kill the men and take the women and children captive. And they would do this Seasonally. And so Israel was used to the Philistines, but they never got victory over them. That's one of the reasons they asked for Samuel to provide them a king. Samuel was asked by the people of Israel, they said, give us a king so he can lead us in war against the Philistines and all of our enemies around us. And yet when God provided Israel the answer to their request in Saul, Saul was still not able to defeat the Philistines. Now, before I move on, let me just tell you, there is an easy comparison of the Philistines to different little avenues in our life. There, there are times where the enemy returns to a familiar place in your life. He hits you in the same place over and over again. There are times where you you have victory, and there's times where you have breakthrough, and there's times where you know that God is giving you much grace, and you're you're flowing, and you're crushing the enemy. But there are also seasons. There can be seasons where, when your guard is down, that enemy comes back. That's the way the Philistines were to the people of Israel, and so we'd like to think, well, at least they've got a king, at least they've got an army, but check it out. Look at verse number two. Because though Saul was on the throne, he was a powerless leader, and he was just posturing as the king. The verse says that Saul and the men of Israel were gathered, and they were encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. So let me give you some geography here. You've got a hill on this side, and the Philistines are on it. And you've got a hill on this side, and the children of Israel are on it. And so they're used to setting up in battle array. They knew how to do a battle formation. And in between the two hills is this great valley called the Valley of Elah, or Elah. And in this valley was where the battle should have taken place. So you've got Israel positioned and in battle array. You've got the Philistines in battle array. But the fight hadn't actually happened yet. So, there's a lot of posturing going on. It is the appearance from Israel that they're ready for the fight. They've got all the weapons of war. They've got their tents set up. They've got a king sitting on his throne in his tent. So, to the natural eye, it looks like, okay, they're ready to rumble, but they weren't. And the reason why is because their leader had lost his anointing, he had lost the favor of God, he had lost his power. He had lost any sense whatsoever of having God's blessing on his life, and so Saul was trapped in fear and indecision. One of the worst things that can happen to any of our leaders is that they get so far, I'm talking about in the kingdom, leaders in the kingdom, they get so far away from God and so trusting in their own abilities that they lose the sense of God's blessing upon them. And we're going to find out in a minute there was a massive obstacle that was intimidating not only Saul, but the entire uh, army of Israel. So picture again, you've got battle array, you've got a fight being set up, but you have nobody in Israel with courage. Not yet. And so this prolonged standoff takes place. Verse 3, the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. You can read down a little bit later in verses we didn't read, and you'll find in verse 16 that they, this battle array, this posturing for war had been going on for almost six weeks, for 40 days. Philistines are over here, Israel's over here. But they didn't just stay there. There was one guy in the Philistine army that was driving Israel mad, and we're going to be introduced to that dude in a moment. And so here's the context. It's all in the context of of warfare, of tension, of great trouble, and Israel is in a season where the glory of God and the power of God is not with them anymore. That there's very few things worse, and I can speak from personal experience and some regrettable times in my life. There's few things worse than being in the middle of warfare and wondering where the presence of God has gone in your life. Now, I know none of y'all have ever experienced that. It's for the people that'll listen by podcast. I'm sure it's not for y'all guys. But, but the reality is, is if we're being honest, most of us have been opposed or in a challenging season at a time where we're maybe spiritually weak and we don't have the confidence that God is with us or for us or in us. And that's what King Saul in Israel was going through. Now, because of all that, the days of war in Israel became days of worry for Saul. And that's in verses 4 through 11. What do these days of worry look like? Let's get into the nitty-gritty. Y'all stay with me here because it's going to get exciting in a moment. First of all, we've got these intimidating obstacles. Let me just read verses 4 through 7. It says, there came out of the camp, this is high drama moment right here. There came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. He was 9 feet 6 inches. Some, some would say 9 feet 9 inches. Either way, he's troubled. And he has a helmet of bronze on his head. And he's armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was, it was over 125 pounds. So his his chest plate, going from his shoulders down to his, right around his knees, 125 pounds of bronze um, covering that. Verse 6 says that he had bronze armor on his legs. And a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, the shaft of his spear, Was like a weaver's beam. And his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, or about 25 pounds. And on top of that, he's got another dude standing in front of him called a shield-bearer. And the shield-bearer would carry a shield that typically was body length. So let's just go there for a second. So Saul and all of Israel are looking down into the valley on the hillside about maybe... I don't know, a half a mile across that valley. On the hillside, they see all of the soldiers of the Philistines, and those guys are ready for battle. And coming out from among them is this gigantic man, nine feet six inches tall. Picture that, and then picture him raising his arms above his head. And picture the massively intimidating sight of this warrior. Now, it'd be bad enough if the guy had no armor on. But his head, the top of his head, is covered in armor. His whole upper body is covered in chain mail that is made of bronze that nothing's going to penetrate. And then his, even his legs are covered in what we would call like shin guards that are made of bronze. Across his back is a javelin, a spear that they can see coming up this end behind him and going down this end behind him. And the guy's standing there, and he's got his hands free because he doesn't need to hold a shield. Why? Because he's got his mini-me standing in front of him with a life-size shield. There's no way, there's no human way for anybody to reasonably think they can beat Goliath. And on top of that, Goliath knows how to talk smack. Now, before I cast any stones at any of the soldiers of Israel, I'll just say, that's something to process when you're seeing Goliath out there. That's not a small thing. It's not a light thing, which makes it all the more remarkable what David is going to do in this chapter. But let's go on a little bit further, because for, for literally for 40 days... Goliath has been coming out to taunt Israel almost six weeks, every single day. And look at what he's doing. Now on this particular day, he's drawing a line in the sand. He stands and shouts to the ranks of Israel. I'm not going to shout so it doesn't blow up the speakers, but he's screaming, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and you will serve us. So Goliath not only has a big body, he's got a big mouth. This is your stereotypical, obnoxious, gigantic guy who has learned that nobody's going to beat him. He is a chest-thumping, strutting, marauding mammoth of a man, And he literally has gone undefeated probably his whole life. He's never known a taste of defeat. And he knows how to use every asset. He's a perfect picture, by the way, of of our enemy. Our enemy, the devil, and his whole strategy against us is one of accusation and intimidation. And the Bible does qualify him as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It's not that Satan has no powers. It's just that greater is the one that lives in you, my Christian friend, than the one that lives in the world. So greater is the God who lives in you than the devil who is roaming about like a modern day Goliath and, and intimidating and accusing and screaming. I like what, uh, what we read here. I think it's noteworthy. He says, why are y'all in battle array? Why are you up there posturing like you came here to fight? You haven't done anything for 40 days. Why are you even bothering staying here protecting your hillside? We're here to fight. Y'all won't fight. Why are you set up in battle array? Am I not a Philistine? Aren't you Israels? And then he adds this. Aren't you the servants of Saul? That would have been like rubbing salt into their wounds because he calls out the king of Israel. The tallest man in the nation, the mightiest man in the nation, at least could have been the mightiest man in the nation, was at one time, and the man with the most authority in the nation, and Goliath says, yeah, y'all belong to him, right? Where is he? It's very interesting that Saul is pictured as staying in his tent. Saul is hiding in the tent on a day where he's supposed to be leading his people, And Goliath and all the Philistines know it. And so he's calling out their king by name. And in essence, he's saying, well, if Saul won't fight me, pick any man that will. Pick any man that will come down here. I'll tell you what we'll do. Instead of all of you guys dying, just pick one of your guys, send him down here. I'll kill him, and the Israelites will serve the Philistines. And if you happen, if he happens to kill me, then we'll serve you guys. And everybody on the hillside knows what the outcome is going to be. They know that nobody in Israel can beat Goliath. And so it is an impossible situation, but it's now unavoidable. Goliath has said, we're going to fight. You better send a man out now. Now, I'd love to see Saul on his face. I'd love to see the children of Israel crying out to God. Not one time in this whole chapter do you see anybody praying. There, there is no seeking of the heart of God by Saul and the people of Israel. David will be on the scene later and everything changes, but for right now, it's an absolute scene of faithlessness, intimidation, fear. Look at verses 10 and 11. Look at the faithless response. Now, the Philistine, Goliath, says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together, and verse 11 sums it all up. When Saul and Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. You know, I believe in the inspiration of Scripture. I believe that holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they penned what the Lord was saying. And it doesn't just say that they were afraid. It didn't just say they were nervous. The Holy Spirit says, in essence, to the one writing the book of Samuel, Make sure you write down that they were greatly afraid. They were shaking in their boots. Saul is wringing his hands. He's sweating buckets. Um, he's having to take, you know, anti-diarrhea medicine. That probably wasn't proper, but just go with me there. I mean, he is just, he's messed up. And they were greatly afa- afraid. But here's, here's where Goliath began to make some, some tactical mistakes. He's so proud and so confident and he sees the wimpiness of God's people and he starts defying the armies the ranks of Israel so he's gone beyond just a military thing and we're going to find out later that he invokes the name of his gods against the god of Israel so he's he's starting to believe his own press clippings a little bit he, he's starting to believe his own twitter feed and he's saying to himself Hmm, nobody's going to fight me. I'm just going to amp it up a little bit. I defy anybody in the entire army of Yahweh to come out against me. And that's where things start eroding for the giant of Gath. But if it depended on Saul and all the soldiers that he had set the example for, um, there wasn't going to be any victory for Israel. Just a quick aside here. I believe in transparent leadership, and I hope that your pastors and leaders here in this house uh, do an honorable job of making sure that you never think more highly of any of us than you should. Because apart from the Holy Spirit, um, nothing good dwells in our flesh. We're just a big bag of flesh, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, and left to our own devices, our own resources, our own gifts, and our own ingenuity and experience, we will make a mess of things. So I believe in being transparent, but I also believe this, that leadership in the kingdom is an honor, and to whom much is given, much is required. And so as as one who serves in leadership, I know this. I wake up every day, and so do I can speak for all the other pastors and most of the other leaders in this house. I wake up every day, and there's a a weight on me that says, for the sake of the people, my wife, my children, the, the people we serve and lead, the people we've influenced and spoken the truth to over many, many years, for the sake of the people, I can't afford to operate in faithlessness. Now, I need to do it for my own soul. I'm not bypassing that. But there's a part of me that recognizes as as the leaders go, so do the followers. And so what we've got here is we've got Saul living in fear and therefore the entire army living in fear. And we'll find out very quickly all that the army was waiting for was somebody to stand up and show courage. And that somebody was not going to be King Saul, that somebody was going to be an, up to that point, unknown little shepherd teenager in the youth group named David. So I want to say this to all of you that have influence and leadership in the kingdom, whether it's in your family, whether it's in the community, whether it is in a a ministry or the church or otherwise, uh, I would just say that we owe it to the people following us to um, build ourselves up in our most holy faith, as the Apostle Jude wrote, praying always in the Spirit. That means that we can't afford an hour of dropping our our guard And assuming we can operate for a little bit in the flesh, and I'm sure things will be okay. That's what got Saul in trouble in the first place. So let's now get into David. So the scene shifts. We go from this battle scene, and now we're going to shift to a scene that's taken place on the ranch of a man named Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. Jesse's three oldest boys are in the fight scene, They're in the army of Israel, but the rest of his sons are back on the farm, including his youngest son, David. And so, let's look as the scene shifts to David and his duties. Now, remember, David's the anointed king. David's the one upon whom the spirit rushed from the day of his anointing. David's got prophetic destiny to be the king of Israel. He's the man of God. He is literally the uh, the guy that God chose, handpicked, and said, I'm going to make you the king of Israel. But look where we find him. The Bible says that David was the son of an Ephrathite name of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons. In the days of Saul, Jesse was already old and advanced in years. And the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to do what? To feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Now, I need you to track with me here, especially if you're in a category of Christians That feels like you've got a calling, you have a touch of God on your life, you've got a sense of prophetic destiny about who you are and what God wants to do with you, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things as long as you're processing all of that in humility and dependence. You should have a sense of God's touch on your life. You should have a sense of purpose no matter who you are. You should recognize that you're here not as an accident or an oversight, but God planted you in this generation and has let you live thus far in order that you might fulfill whatever that destiny is. So we should have some sense of the touch of God on our lives, but few of us have what David has. I don't know of any kings and queens in the room. You might have that kind of calling on your life of high elevation. David had the highest in the land. He had already begun to experience promotion. He went from the sheepfold into the king's palace where he was the court musician and the armor bearer to King Saul. But then David got, can we say it this way? must have felt like on day one, David got demoted. Hey, David, um, your three other brothers are coming to serve our king in the army. And the king says, you've got to go back home and resume your duties as the little shepherd boy. And so I can imagine that David might have, we don't read it in scripture, but it it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that David might have thought, now wait a minute, I've got this anointing and God's been elevating me and promoting me. I'm already here in the palace. Surely the next step is that Saul's going to die and I'm going to become the king. And yet, if he was thinking that, what David found out was very different. It was God said to the anointed one, go back to your role as a servant. Go back to being the little brother. Going, and by the way, when we think of shepherding, it sounds so poetic and glamorous. Oh, to be, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If you were a shepherd, I'm, I'll, I'm not going to be ugly about it, but you're cleaning up sheep stuff, and, and you are dealing with stinky, smelly, dumb sheep. You're fighting lions, bears, and wolves. You're walking long hours in a boring pasture. It's not glamorous. It's not like pulling out your sixth string and getting your jam on for Jesus in the presence of King Saul. It's not that. It's, where'd that sheep go? I gotta clean up this stuff again, I gotta feed the sheep, I gotta lead the sheep, and so on and so on. So it could have felt like a demotion, but we never see anywhere in David's testimony that he regarded it as a demotion. Um, We do see that he went back to the most mundane duties that he might have thought God had graduated him from. But with his brothers in the army, David was needed to go back into the sheepfold for work. Now, so he's back at home doing that. The Bible says he would occasionally be called back up to the palace, but he was doing in-between back-and-forth duties. But now his dad comes to him in verse 16. And this is David getting dispatched to the army. David is actually going to go up and see the battle. Remember, he's a teenager, He's not some, you know, robust, experienced, seasoned veteran. He's a teenager. I've got, I'm, raising a teenage, I'm raising a teenage boy. Well, my wife and I are. But we, we understand that the excitement and the zeal and the, yeah, the battles, the hormones are going, the testosterone's fueling. I get to leave these sheep and I get to go to the battle scene. So look at what Jesse says. He says, take for your brothers parched grain, these 10 loaves of bread, carry them quickly to the camp of your brother. Oh, yeah, David, also, before you go, take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. So Jesse goes and finds David in the the sheepfold. He says, hey, I'm worried about your brothers. I'm going to send you up to the scene of the battle. It's been like six weeks, David. I haven't heard anything. Make sure your brothers have enough to eat, and so here's the bread, and here's the grain. And by the way, find out who who their leader is. Let's see if we can honor them. Um, Take some cheese. So I look at it this way. David, the anointed one, with a prophetic destiny, with a calling on his life, with a man upon whom the Holy Spirit is abiding since the day of his anointing, he's now the ancient equivalent of an Uber Eats driver. That's his role now. Nobody thinks that way when they know they've got an anointing. And David literally, I mean, I want you to hear me on this because it makes me chuckle, but it isn't funny when it happens to you. David is taking cheese. He's delivering cheese. What could be less glorious than your assignment as the anointed king of Israel that hey, the guy with the cheese is here. And that's literally David's lot in life for this season. I'm going to submit to you that this is not unique to David. I'm going to submit to you something that I believe is important for all of of us as believers, but especially for those of you that feel stuck, shelved, living beneath your anointing. You've you've got a calling, but you don't have release to that calling. You've got a touch of God on your life, but you don't have an outlet for it. You've got a sense of destiny that he's made you something for something greater than delivering your cheese and cleaning up after your sheep. But here's what I want to submit to you. When God gives us assignments that are beneath our anointing, that may seem detached from our destiny and calling. This is why we honor those things. Not because they themselves, those cheese deliveries, those grain deliveries, those cleaning up after the sheep, not because those duties are awesome, but because the one who gave you those duties is awesome. It's a test. I don't know a single leader that I have kingdom respect for who's making a difference in the kingdom or made a difference in previous years, who didn't go through the season, where God put them on the shelf just like a potter will do. Um, I can't remember who the writer was, but I remember reading a book one time and a writer was visiting visiting a, a pottery place and he spent a couple of hours in this pottery place watching from beginning of the process to the end of the process as the potter took up the clay, wetted it, formed and fashioned it, made it, and then, I don't know if he fired it or not, but at some point when the vessel looked complete to the guy that was observing, the potter took it and he put it on a shelf, and the guy looked and there was a whole lot of other vessels, a whole lot of vases and jars that were up on that shelf, and so he interrupted and he said, Why do you put them on the shelf after you're done with them? You've formed them, you've made them. Why do you put them on the shelf? He says, I want to see if they'll hold their shape. And I believe that our potter does the same things with us. I believe that he's fashioned you. You're not imagining that. He's called you. You're not imagining that. There's an anointing that he's given you. You're not imagining that. But he puts you on the shelf to see if you'll wait on him, to see if you'll hold the shape that he gave you while he's not letting you use your calling, use your anointing, do something awesome in the kingdom. Whether it is the mundane work, oftentimes, of motherhood. I know some anointed mamas, by the way. I mean, I'm talking straight-up anointed mamas. Mamas who, if they weren't doing a good job taking care of their kids and doing all of those things that, really, I mean, I'll just tell you, I've never been a mom, but I've played one on TV. But I've never... <laughs> I'm telling you... Little two-year-olds aren't known for saying, Mommy, thank you for sacrificing the tireless hours of caring for me and providing for me and cleaning me. Matter of fact, I have a new diaper right now that you can come and change, but thank you. I know that's stupid, but it never happens. There's no thanks in that. There's only demand to those moms. Or, Or what about the bivocational pastor who's got as much passion, anointing, and gifting as some big shot somewhere in some mega church and that bivocational guy is spending 40 to 50 hours a week in in earning his living and then giving everything else he can to the kingdom and sometimes he wonders did I miss my calling or why isn't God doing what I want God to do now listen it could be played out in a hundred different ways but the reality is is that a lot of the Christian life is spent discovering that God isn't in a hurry you know listen this is this is hard stuff to hear sometimes but God doesn't need me. He doesn't, he loves me. I mean, I am beloved by the Lord. The Lord loves me. I know he loves me. I don't know that he likes me all the time because I can can be a little bit mm, sometimes, but I, I actually know that he loves me, but I've never thought that he needed me. And honestly, it even goes deeper. The kingdom doesn't need me. And so when we can come to that place where we recognize that we are important to the heart of God, but not crucial for the mission of God, then we're freed up to enter into this thing called patience and humility. And we can honor him when he's put us on the shelf to the same degree that we honor him when he's using us and we're firing on all eight cylinders. David, best I can tell when I'm reading, seemed to give no less to the sheep and the cheese than he did to Goliath, which we'll find out uh, in a little in, in a couple of messages. So he's dispatched, He goes to the battle scene, verses nineteen and twenty. David rose up early in the morning. that speaks of his motivation. And he left the sheep with a keeper and took provisions. That's his preparation. So he didn't just run away from his duties. He made sure that they were covered. Don't let your calling give you a sense of aloofness to your responsibilities. If, if, if your calling in ministry has detached you from your other responsibilities, you're not stewarding your calling well. David made sure his duties were taken care of, and he went just as Jesse commanded him, and that speaks of his dedication. He did his, his duties to honor his earthly father the same way he would later do his duties to honor his heavenly father. So now he gets to the scene, so let's go to this point here. This is where David shows up, and I call these like days of wonder from David. Not wonder in the sense of, oh, God is awesome. Wonder in the sense of, what are you idiots doing? He shows up on the battle scene, and what he expects to be this glorious pounding of the Philistines, David shows up to a completely different atmosphere, so check it out. He encounters, first of all, this amazing unbelief in verse 20. It says he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line. So the, the fresh soldiers are now taking their row, their, their their ranks, while the soldiers from the previous watch are going back to their tents to rest. And David shows up, and, and now the Philistines are shouting the war cry, and Israel's faking it and shouting it back. So it sounds like a battle. It might even look like a battle. The problem is the necessary ingredient to win a battle is completely absent. What is that? Courage. And in verse 21, it says, Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, and he ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. Watch this. Everything changes right here. And David heard him. David heard Goliath's words, and this is where everything starts to change. And all the men of Israel, when they saw Goliath, they fled from him and were much afraid. So here's David. He says, hey, I'm the cheese guy. Here's the cheese. Hey, my dad sent it. No problems. Give that to the commander. I'm going to take the uh, the grain and the bread, and if you'll give that to my brothers. By the way, where are my brothers? Oh, they're out there. Okay, so he's a little teenage self. He runs out there to see Eliab and uh, Benadab and Shammah, and he's like, hey, guys, dad, let me come up. I brought y'all some food. How's, How's the war going? And before they can answer, Goliath comes out, I defy the armies of Israel. Send out a man. If I kill him, you serve us. If he kills me, we'll serve you, but where is your warrior? And David says, say, what? Oh, David, David's thinking this is the first time this loud mouth has opened his mouth. David's like, oh, I can't wait to see. When Saul hears this, Saul's going to take this dude's head off. Where's Saul? Anybody seen Saul? Okay, Abinadab, you're big. But Abinadab, go get him, man. Come on. Abinadab? Abin- Eliab? Come on, big bro. Shammah? And Goliath's still down there running his mouth. And if you've ever been in an awkward situation where everybody knows the right thing to do, but nobody wants to do it, and hands go in the pockets, and just kind of like shuffling the feet. Yeah, man, uh, that big dude has been doing this for 40 days. And David is stunned by the unbelief. So the people start telling him something something that we didn't read because we didn't go this far, but let's read it now. There's actually this amazing carnality that has been promised for anybody that'll fight Goliath. What is it? Verse 25, the men of Israel. So the soldiers said to David, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, but the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Now, here's the deal. After maybe day 5, maybe day 10, maybe day 15, 25, or 30, Saul's like, nobody, I'm not going to go down there and fight him. And I don't have a single soldier to fight him. Let me sweeten the pot a little bit. Hey, guys, um, there's a signing bonus. If anybody wants to get the signing bonus, you just got to go out there and kill. What's the signing bonus? You will never have to worry about money again. And by the way, I've got some daughters, and I will give you my daughter. By the way, the one that got given away to David wasn't, wasn't a prize. She wasn't a good one. But they didn't know that at this time. And then the, the extra bonus is your entire family will be free forever from paying taxes in the kingdom. Nobody was motivated to do the right thing by the glory of God. And so there had to be a carnal motivation dug up. It's the way things work so often. Oh man, I can feel my old, my old little griping pastor want to come out, but let me, let me just say this. It's for the people on podcasts, it's not for you. It's hard to get people to volunteer in local church ministry and it seems like when volunteers are needed not just this church I mean this church is no exception we have a great base of volunteers we thank God for them but we're, we're not entirely different from other churches where a minority of the people do the majority of the work and if, there's always the excuses well I'm tired I don't have time Sunday's my only day off and you know just the same old stuff but I guarantee you if you said hey why don't you serve in the nursery for the glory of Jesus. Will somebody watch the little babies for the glory of Jesus and just be a part of the process whereby we do ministry on Sundays? A lot of people have a lot of excuses. But if you said, hey, by the way, for anybody who wants to serve in the nursery, there's a $200 a week bonus if you'll serve an hour. Suddenly people's schedules are open. They feel the anointing for children's ministry come upon them. And they're like, and I feel called to that. I really did. This is my calling now. I know, we have to laugh because otherwise it's a little awkward and embarrassing, but the, the, the reality is, is that's not new. It's, it goes back. Sometimes when, when, when the glory of God doesn't motivate people to do the right thing, unfortunately leaders, they kind of stoop to a lower level and they just start coming up with carnal rewards. I'll just say this. Jesus spoke often of people doing religious activities, and he, he said that's all the reward they'll get. King James, verily, verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. And what, what David is about to be blown away by is that, that people, why don't you just go down there and kill this dude for the glory of God? So David's just kind of like, what am I hearing here? As a matter of fact, it's in verse 26. So David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? And then he asked a very delicate question. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? That he should defy the armies of the living God. Do you hear it in David's voice? He's like, Why are you letting this pagan, this heathen, this Philistine, this polytheistic bowing down to false gods, loser, run his mouth about us and our God? He's an uncircumcised Philistine. Who is he that he should say one more word about God and his army? I love that about this teenager. He's a teenager. He's a teenager. Come on. I'm middle-aged. I'll be 50 on my next birthday, so I, I can't say I'm the young guy anymore. But I'm going to tell you, every now and then, we just need to get real as maybe an older generation and recognize that the older we get, there is a greater tendency just to kind of chill, just to kind of learn to live with stuff that doesn't exactly measure up to, to God's glorious ways. And it's awesome of God, sometimes He'll just send a rowdy, faith-filled member of the youth group basically to get up in our face and say, hey, old-timer, where's your faith? Where'd you lose it? Why are you letting the devil get the glory? When did you stop believing in God for great things? When did you start settling? When did you start believing that it was okay to, to sell out to the status quo? When did you start, stop trusting God for God to be great? And David is asking questions like this. And by the way, he makes everybody mad, or at least his brothers. Verse 27, if you'll throw that back up on the screen, that same passage. The people answered him in the same way. Yes, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, or Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the other men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. This is big brother syndrome right here. He said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those little sheepies? Paraphrasing. I know your presumption. So he starts questioning David's motives. David's the most pure-hearted guy in the whole scene, and Eliab is attributing to David poor motives. He says, I know the evil of your heart. You've just come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? This is where I wish I had my King James, because my King James says, is there not a cause? I love that, man. I remember preaching that for the first time. as I, I'd been saved six months. I remember preaching this passage to a trapped group of people in Sunday school. And I'm just saying, wake up, church. I'm 25 years old, been sober for six months, and I'm telling them what's wrong with their faith. I'm like, isn't there a cause? I've been here six months and y'all are sitting on your rear ends there's a dent in your pew from where you sit and don't get up i'm like isn't there a cause you know that's david's spirit there he's looking around he's like aren't you guys the soldiers he says what have i said i was just i'm just giving a word and he turned away from his brother eliab and he turns toward another and spoke in the same way. So David is now done talking to Eliab because there's just some people you can't talk into faith. There's just some people who are bound and determined to live in the status quo. Quit trying to, to, to address them. Don't cast your pearls before the swine. And sometimes you just got to let them be lukewarm and you move on to others. And David starts walking around saying, this is wrong. I, I hear the, the Philistine taunting us, this is not right. And so this is where we're going to end tonight. David reveals his faith in his words. This is what he says. Just watch this. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? I don't care if he's nine foot, nine, six inches tall. I don't care if he's got a helmet on. I don't care if he's got a chainmail breastplate. I don't care if he's got his shins covered and his, his javelin behind it strapped on his back. I don't care that he's got as many me out there holding a shield in front. Who is this loser? Who is this God? You know, we, we, we shouldn't operate with other human beings with that kind of spirit. We, there's a way to go about being confident of your victory in the Lord and confident in your battle against the principalities and the powers of darkness, because we don't really wrestle against flesh and blood. So it's not on us to go around operating in a spirit that is parallel to what David's doing here, Um, not with human beings, but I'm gonna say that Goliath represents to me in this passage, the devil. The accusing never stops talking, loud mouth, intimidating, marauding enemy of our souls. And I will tell you, you ought to remind him of who he is. You ought to remind him of who God is. And you ought to remind him of who you are in Christ. Listen, in Isaiah 14, you have this scene, I quote it or at least reference it regularly, that takes us to the very end of the age And in Isaiah 14, you have the prince of Persia who is prophetically symbolic of Satan. I literally believe that the prophecy there in that chapter is forecasting an event that hasn't taken place yet, and it is the destruction, the final destruction of Lucifer. And the Bible says that the people will look upon him in that day, and they'll say, is this the one that troubled the nations? That's in your Bible. That at the end of the age, there's going to be a group of victorious, blood-bought, redeemed children of God who have been fully delivered and are watching Satan bow the knee to the Son of God and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And then the Lord's omnipotent hand takes him and flings him into the fiery lake and, and says, and then we're able to behold it, and we're looking at him and we're saying, that was him? This is the one that made the nations to tremble? Now, friends, here's here's the application for that. Because I don't want to just say, ooh, that's prophetically cool. I want to say, if I'm thinking it then, I need to be believing it now. I don't need to walk around afraid of the devil. I don't need to keep giving the devil glory when something goes wrong in my life. Listen, yes, he fights. That's his job. Get over it. That's what he's going to do. He's going to fight you. But the Bible never says that he wins against us. And not every negative thing that happens in your life is worthy to give the devil credit for. And I believe that if we could get the spirit of David and just say, who is this fallen angel who rebelled against the glory of my heavenly Father? Who is he to think that he can come into my life and dethrone Jesus' glory from my life? You've got to get your fight back, friend. There's some people in the body of Christ that got great theology, but they lost their fight. And what good is your theology? What, what good is a sword if you can't lift it? And, and, and theology without faith is tormenting. So David speaks his faith. He's the, it's the first words of faith that have been spoken on that hillside in six weeks. And it's coming from the kid in the youth group. And of course, his faith was resisted because his older brother just looks at him and and tries to shot block him. How many of y'all had big brothers? Raise your hand if you had big brothers. Yeah. They're not always awesome. Some of them maybe, but most of them not, not always that awesome. And... They have a way of taking little brothers especially, sometimes little sisters, but little brothers, and it's like for a season in big brother's life, it's his, it's his calling to make little brother feel as little as possible. And so Eliab looks at David and he just boom, boom, boom. Hey dude, you're, you're a little shepherd boy. Can't you see my battle gear? I'm a soldier. David's probably like, well, why aren't you fighting? You don't dress are dressed like a soldier. But, but he's telling David, I know your wicked heart. I know you just came up here to either be seen in the battle or to see the battle. Why don't you go back to the sheep? You're supposed to be watching the sheep, little brother. And David's just immediately hammered. But this is what I love about him. And remember, this is early on in his story. David doesn't back off his position. He doesn't fall down and cry, sucking his thumb. My big brother doesn't like me. He, he doesn't fall apart because somebody didn't believe in him. You, you need to hear me on this. If you're set to fight the enemy for the glory of God, you don't have time to whine. You don't have time to get all curled up in the fetal position and feel sorry for yourself. Listen, I'm I'm just being bold with you here, but that's what the enemy likes to do. He likes to discourage and defeat you so that you'll perpetually feel like a victim when you're a victor. And so when when Eliab starts running his mouth, David's like, people don't say this anymore, but David's like, talk to the hand. I I am done. Let me talk to this dude over here. Best I could tell, I don't think Eliab ever is mentioned again. If I'm not mistaken, I, don't, I think that's the last thing we hear from Eliab. Sometimes when your words are faithless against people who have faith, God will just put you on mute. He'll just remove your voice. And so David deals with all of this. And right before, and I'm going to finish right here, David just looks around and he's like, Isn't there a reason for me to be incensed? Isn't there a reason for me to be calling you guys out? Isn't there a reason for me to wonder why for six weeks nobody has shut that giant's mouth? That's where the chapter ends. The next time that we enter into 1 Samuel 17 will be a week from this Sunday. And we'll see the next test that comes David's way before he goes, so to speak, toe-to-toe with Goliath. The enemy was trying to keep David in that place where he only saw himself as the little shepherd boy. David could do the functions of a shepherding servant, but David knew he was a king. And if you and I will not take our identity from the lowly tasks or the lack of awesomeness to a season of life. If we'll not say, I'm not awesome because my life season isn't awesome. Instead, if we'll just say, like we sang tonight, I am who he says that I am. I may be chasing sheep, but my calling is to be a king. I may be operating in lowly servanthood and I'm going to do it as under the glory of God, but I'm telling you, he has made me a king and I will fight like one who is royalty. Let's stand to our feet tonight. I'm just going to go after it here. Um, come on, let's just all bow our heads for a minute. If you've got to go, you got to go. I'll be done here in two, three minutes. If you feel shelved, if you feel stuck, if you feel like life is about delivering cheese and cleaning up after sheep, if you feel like your anointing is at level nine, but your life is at level two, your circumstances are at level two, your opportunities are at level two, but you know you've been given a level nine anointing, I want you to acknowledge it, and I want you to search your heart, Where are you with that reality? It's not the will of the Lord to frustrate you. It's not the will of the Lord to tease you. He's your father. He's not some heartless drill instructor. He's your father. He knows the end from the beginning, He knows where you're going to eventuate. Can you believe that he's good? Even when your calling is not maxing out, can you believe that? Will you treat today's mundane duties, will you treat them with the honor as if it was the greatest thing ever offered you? not because it's awesome duties and tasks, but because the one who's giving it to you is awesome. It's about him. If you're on the shelf, he's just watching you. And the fact that you're staying on the shelf and you're still trusting and you're still pressing in and you're still waiting, even when you don't do it joyfully every single moment, but you're not budging, you're not giving in to quitting, you're not despairing, you're waiting. He's saying, look at my daughter, hold her shape. Look at my son, hold his shape. I love them. I'm so blessed by them. Just a little while longer, son. Just a little while longer, daughter. Keep holding your shape. I put you there. I'll take you down at the perfect time. And when I take you down, I'm going to fill you. I made you to hold something. You're not an empty vessel. You're an intentional vessel. I'm going to put something in you. So Father, tonight, for those that are shelved or stuck, or maybe even moving in and out of frustration or bewilderment. Holy Spirit, right now, release new levels of faith and patience. We love your gifts, Holy Spirit, but tonight we ask for fruit. The fruit of the Spirit includes patience and faith. Richer fruit, Holy Spirit, in my life, in the lives of each of us. You are a worthy God to wait for. In Jesus' name, amen.